Welcome to a special episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Be sure to stay tuned to the end for a very special invitation from Leslie. But for now, get ready to throw off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about relationships. Relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to Relationship Truth Unfiltered, and I have a very special guest with us today. Pastor J.D. Greer is the pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and it's been ranked by Outreach Magazine as one of the fastest growing churches in the United States. J.D. has a PhD in systematic theology, which I think is amazing, um, from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's got a new book called Essential Christianity, The Heart of the Gospel in 10 Words. And J.D., I took a look at the summary of it, and it just looks really good. I can't wait to read it, but I'm so anxious that you're here because one of the things I want on this podcast is to have the pastoral voice, to speak into the problems at large about how the church has often mishandled recognizing abuse and not treated the victims as credible, believable, and protecting them instead of shielding the um, oppressor. And so I just appreciate so much. I know that Summit Church is trying to make a positive difference when it comes to working with this whole topic, especially couples and destructive marriages. We had Brad Hambrick, who is a counselor on your staff on the podcast recently, and we've had other members of our support group have been positively impacted by the support that they've received at Summit. So I just want you as a pastor to know that. Mm. And that you're an important voice in spearheading not only what's happening at your church, but the larger church. Uh, you were an instrumental part of initiating the Church Cares Project that I was a part of that was really instrumental in educating and offering free education to churches on how to handle abuse. How has that project gone, do you think? You know, I mean, it's easy to look at what is left to be done and to say, oh, it's not going that well. But you know, on the other side, I, I do look at a lot of conversations that are now taking place that just weren't before. And even if it's not exactly where I would want it to be, the fact that people are talking about it, the fact that in quarters that I you just it wouldn't have been mentioned 10 or 15 years ago, people know this is something that they need to be thinking about. It's part of um, not just our pastoral responsibility, but our, our, our gospel responsibility. I'm very encouraged by where the conversation is and where I think it's headed. Yeah, I am too. I think that there is far more willingness to have a conversation about it. But I think that pastors have a tough job in trying to be fair, trying to be open to both sides of a story, trying to be caring for the reputation of the body of Christ, as well as the welfare of the people in it. As a leader, JD, in the Southern Baptist denomination, as a godly man, why do you think there's been such a resistance in the past and still today from very conservative men, church leaders, to really tackle the issue of abuse, especially the abuse of power, whether it's from the pulpit or in the home? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. And it's a very uncomfortable question. I think there's probably multiple reasons and there's no way that we can diagnose any one human heart. We can just maybe say there's some general patterns. Um, the most obvious one is that it's easier to diagnose other people's sins than it is our own. <laughs> I've always known this about myself, that ministry is a great place for guys with the idol of success to hide because you can cloak all your service of power and, and self-aggrandizement. You can cloak it all in the terms of I'm doing this for Jesus. And so I think there's some, you know, there's definitely some heart check motives that you got to ask is you got to say, why is it that 
that I do I do gravitate toward these things. I, I think that's that's one layer. I think a, a second piece is going to be some of it has just been if you let me be as charitable as I can, and then I'll be less charitable in a minute. But I think um I think for some people it's it's a genuine naivete about about what the abuse what the abuser relationships are like. And if 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 you haven't been in one or haven't been up close to one, you tend to think like, well, that, that that's probably not going to happen. And then you you're you're confronted with it and you realize this was happening. And I didn't realize it was happening because the people that I thought would never do this were actually they were either willfully or or unwittingly enabling this to happen. And then you just look at some cold, hard facts, some of the statistics about how many people in our churches have been in a relationship like this. And you say, you know, how could this be happening and, and not know it? So the, the the really charitable thing is that a lot of it is naivety. You know, a third thing I would say is it's a sinful tendency to to want to give the benefit of the doubt to people who are like us, but not people who are not like us. And what I mean by that is if Brother Steve comes in and somebody accuses him of ah, not, not him, I know him, he'd never do something like that. And it, listen, we're not trying to correct the abuse problem by jumping to conclusions on the other side. You, you don't fix a wrong with another wrong. But realizing that I'm not giving the one who's reporting the abuse the same level of benefit of the doubt that I'm giving to this guy, Steve, I'm talking about. I mean, they, they, in one sense, they they both deserve to be believed. And in the sense that historically pastors have said, well, I'm going to believe the guy who is being accused that he wouldn't do it and not believing the one who's bringing up the issue, especially when you consider how difficult it is for somebody to bring forward an issue like that. It's been a sinful blindness to believing that these kinds of things can happen and happen, um, and that we owe the benefit of the doubt to the person that's that's bringing it forward. I can't remember who said it first, but of all people, we pastors should have known because Jesus told us. He said, you know what? In the flock, there's going to be people who come who look like shepherds, but are actually wolves. We should have known that, and we that should have made us be more aware when it happened. But but um, I think whether it's, like I said, naivety or or willful ignorance, it's it's been something that we haven't served well on as well as we should have. Yeah. And when we talk about marriage, because our ministry has specifically dealt with a lot of women in destructive and abusive marriages, sometimes the abusive husband is the pastor. And it's mm. really hard to go to the church about the pastor as well as it is to go to the police about the police. Some of our women's husbands are policemen as well. Um, and it makes it really hard to be believed. What would you advise if a pastor was listening to a situation where there might be some red flags? What would you suggest that they do differently that they haven't done in the past? Yeah, you know, part of it is is uh, widening the circle of people that are having the conversation, making sure that there are other women that are included. I mean, you know, I, I'll tell you, Leslie, just very, you know, without any kind of hesitation, you know, we believe what the Bible what we call, you know, complementarianism that God has put, you know, so I, I don't mean anything I'm about to say to compromise that because I, I think it's only unhealthy versions of complementarianism that don't allow for what I'm about to say. What I want to say is that um, the insights of other women into various situations is a crucial part of being able to understand what the problem is and also being able to pick up on things that that may not be being seen because when you have got two people in front of me, I mean, honestly, Leslie, naturally, I kind of like, 
I mean, just by nature, I tend to see it more through the guy's point of view. That is, you know, in a sense, it's a little inescapable, but I should be able to structure how I am a part of these conversations so that that other people are being able to see things that I can't see. Uh, I look back at even some of my early, you know, counseling appointments where I just sort of like, you know, kind of took a real scriptural, let's just call it a hard line and just said, you know, well, this is what, what um, what's got to happen. And this is what the Bible says. And didn't realize some of the relational dynamics that were at work and why what was being said that there there was a lot more that was not being said that I just was not aware of and and a multitude of counselors there's wisdom and so I would tell pastors to make sure that they have the right people that are listening and receiving these things um so I, I remember one time I mean I'm almost embarrassed to say this Leslie but telling a um, you know, woman that was in the midst of this argument, you know, basically over these issues saying, well, you need to come before the elder board and make all these, these kind of, and I thought, you know, looking back on it now, I'm like, I mean, the elders, what, 10 men? And not that they weren't good guys, not that they wouldn't listen fairly, but I mean, to, to, to recommend that that be what she does, that she now appears before 10 men to make this accurate. It's just, it, I just say that was, it wasn't, it wasn't intentional, but it was naive on my part. Yeah, and I think that it really is hard to tell, especially in complementarian churches where they want to honor God's word with headship and submission issues, Mm -hmm. to see a woman's resistance to oppression as a lack of submission to authority. Right. That's right. Yeah, which is clearly, I mean, the the, the implication that you're making correctly is that that is not, that is when the Bible talks about submission, that is not what it is talking about. Because that is neither helpful for for you, the woman, or for the guy. In fact, if anything, it's enabling. It's enabling a sin and a, a toxic relationship where you allow yourself to play the victim is is going to ultimately harm you and it's going to foster this lack of unhealth. I, I've had to be very clear when I preach now, and I'm talking about the very real dynamic that we are to lay down our lives in our marriage. The New Testament is going to say, by Jesus's stripes, we were healed. And, and it's our grace toward others that ultimately will heal them. It'll be very clear that what that does not mean is that you then are allowing yourself to be physically, emotionally abused. And somehow that abuse that you take is going to is going to be, be, be how God intends to change his heart. There is there places for grace. There's place for forgiveness and, and suffering, you know, um, as a part of any marriage, but, um, that's, it, 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 we've got to be clear that that's, that that's not healthy. And it's not what the Bible's talking about. I love that. You said that I call that in our group, the myth of a the myth of the heroic sacrifice, mm-hmm. that so many women believe that the heroic sacrifice is laying down your life for the other. And there's real truth to suffering and sacrifice in the Christian virtues and the Christian message, but it's only for someone's betterment. It's for their ultimate good. It's not to enable sin to flourish or enable the best of you to be sacrificed for the worst in someone else to flourish. That's right. Yeah. I mean, take one of the classic passages on this. Um, turning the other cheek. And many of us think, you know, well, the application is, okay, you smack this cheek. All right, I'm going to stand back up. You know, I got another cheek. Take your best shot. Yeah, I'm still standing. I'm still breathing. Um, when really, you know, in, in the Jewish metaphor, what turning the other cheek means is it means to reoffer the relationship. And a relationship has certain rules, you know, I mean, like if we're going to have a legitimate relationship, it cannot be with you continuing to just punch me in the face every you know, a few moments to use the analogy of smacking the cheek. I, I want to reoffer you relationship, but it's going to be on certain terms. 
And those terms are not going to include the oppression and abuse and things that are bad for you and me. By the way, in using this, I'm, I'm not trying to imply that always means that, you know, immediate quick reconciliation. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that either. I'm just saying that some of the passages that we've used to justify this heroic sacrifice that you talk about, we it's because we're not understanding them in the context they're given with the language that's being used and um, we're, 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 we're misapplying them. Yeah, how I like to think of that turning the other cheek, I think of Martin Luther King's statement where he was talking to the oppressed um, and he said, you know what, when someone treats you like a nobody, you still act like a somebody. Mm -hmm. And I love that phrase that Jesus is saying to people, don't lose your agency when someone mistreats you. You still have a choice on how you're going to respond. But in that passage in particular, Jesus was talking about soldiers who were mistreating the Jews. So they really didn't have a relationship personally. But I love in Matthew 18, where he says, hey, if you do have a relationship with someone, your brother or your sister mistreats you, sins against you, offer them a conversation about this. Hey, this bothered right. me. This hurt me. And if they refuse to listen bring it to the church, which is where we would love some help from the church to help the blind person see more clearly. But right. if they still refuse to listen, I think Jesus is so clear here. The relationship dynamic changes. And I've been curious about pastors saying that, well, that doesn't apply to marriage. And yet Jesus is talking about brother or sister, this personal relationship that you have with someone. Your relationship does change with them when they continue to sin against you unrepentantly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, well, very well said. Yeah. So I think that it's really helpful for a pastor to reinforce that, that somehow the relationship of marriage is sacred and important to God, but not more important than the safety and the sanity of people in that relationship. God doesn't want you just to hang in there, allowing someone to continue to harm themselves and harm you. That's right. That's right. That's enabling. So if you were advising a pastor or you were being able to be a big influence on pastors who look up to you, because I think it's different as pastor speaks to pastor, man speaks to man about abuse issues. Besides seeking outside consultation and help, what kind of advice would you give pastors who might be listening to this and saying, well, you know, I see two sinners sinning against each other. I see him acting wrong and her acting wrong. And how can I hold him more responsible for his behavior when she's reacting in destructive ways as well? What kind of advice would you give a pastor in their education process, their ability to see more clearly what's going on? What might be some of their first steps? Yeah, well, I know you said, you know, other than um, widening your circle, but I just do want to talk to there are pastors listening. Uh, I want to talk to these brothers and say there are very practical ways you can do that. One of the ways I do it is I have usually it's two, sometimes three different women on our team, or they used to just be in our congregation. They'll actually read through the transcript of my message before I preach it. And it's amazing how often they'll pick up something that I did not intend, but they said, this is how this is going to be heard. And it allows me to bring in a different perspective as I'm preaching. And one of those could be your wife, but it, you know, it, it, for me, it's been helpful to have it beyond her because other women can sometimes, you know, even my, my wife can get a little blind to just how I usually talk and how it's going to be taken. So that one, uh, the second thing is to acquaint yourself with the conversation. I, I don't even know any shortcut to this. I mean, obviously you're listening to this right now, which means you're doing that. But I would just say, you know, making sure that um, you're up on, on on just some of the the ways that things we've learned about dangerous situations and interpersonal dynamics and 
and cognitive bias and the difficulties of, of, of actually coming to a point where you're you're exposing that. Not because the, the woman is always right and the guy is always wrong. That's not what we're saying either. Just, just to be aware that, of where you know, all of a sudden you say, I'm a little out of my depth here and 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 maybe I need to actually you know get this to a different place that is beyond what my training is and where I can really serve well. Um so I'd say you know get really caught up on the conversation. I, a third thing Leslie would be you know really being careful and pastoral about how you preach about things like divorce and how you preach about forgiveness in marriage. I'm very you know try to be very clear on God's hatred of divorce like he says and and why that wasn't part of his intention. But, you know, in both Old and New Testament, there's a little complexity to it. And you've got to at least acknowledge that. Um, when it comes to, we've already talked about forgiveness, you know, acknowledging a little bit that that there are differences in forgiveness and reconciliation and moving back into the house. You know, th- th- those are not all the same things. And, and, and that getting rid of bitterness might be something you do immediately, but reconciling and moving back in, that may not be something that takes place anywhere near when the initial release of bitterness and forgiveness was offered. Um, so I think being aware of some complexity, I, one of the best ways to do that is to read some really reliable Christian counselors on this. Um, I remember my my first counseling uh, class in seminary, I remember thinking like, if I could preach like anybody, I want to preach like a counselor. I, I love the prophetic, but I just just to be able to lay open the word of God and the broken hearts of people like Jesus did and apply the two things together. And the best way to grow in that is to, to read both men and women that are great counselors and can help help lead you in that. So good. So good, J.D. Thank you. Oh, tell me about the misunderstanding or maybe better word, misapplication of the whole idea of grace. You know, as a, a theologian, my experience at times with grace is sort of the erasure of consequences. Like if you are graceful, if you are merciful, if you are forgiving, well, then the consequences are over. You don't have to experience the pain of separation or the pain of divorce or the pain of the outcome of what you've done. That somehow, if you're really, really sorry, that you shouldn't have the consequences that may come from that. Talk right. about that. And it's kind of like this. You can always get forgiveness, but you can't unsin. And there are certain consequences that are just now part of how the created order is that you've got to be very aware of. I mean, it's easy to think of of extreme examples, but I mean, say you've got a say you've got a case of adultery, and let's say that for, you know in this particular situation, both spouses are able to come to a point of both the sin against spouse and the sinning spouse are able to come to a point of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoring their marriage. What a beautiful picture of forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that whoever the affair was with, that they ought to just be able to start coming back over for dinner again, you know, if, if it was a, a family friend. You know, you say, hey, that, that relationship may be permanently forfeited. We certainly see it when it comes to situations of abuse involving kids. Yes, I do believe that God, that Jesus died for child abusers. And I believe that they can repent and be forgiven and in one sense be restored, be restored fully and completely to God. But I also think that there are, are certain fields that for the rest of their lives, they will not be able to serve in because those sins have, have consequences. And I think we can preach full forgiveness and full grace and not be unaware and blind to some of the permanent consequences um, that take place of sin that aren't, that aren't a challenge to forgiveness. It, ju- it just means that the relational dynamics that have been set up. I'm the first place I ever heard this 
um, was when somebody uh, taught it about if somebody, uh, an unmarried person had sexual relations and got pregnant, like you can get forgiveness for that, but there might be a child. And that child means that that you've got to actually deal with the consequences of that. So um, just realize that we're talking about two different realities and be very careful and clear that you don't just merge them into one because that can be confusing and destructive for people. It really can. And I and I so agree with you that, you know, when David sinned with Bathsheba, he was fully forgiven, fully forgiven. And yet the child still died. David still had consequences to his family right. lineage. And it wasn't that God didn't love him or fully forgive him. He did. And so I think sometimes we've, felt guilty that somehow I forgive this person, but I don't want to live with them again. I don't, I can't trust them again. Their sin is so egregious or I don't feel safe with them again. And I think that's really important to acknowledge that sometimes consequences are permanent. The, the child dies, the, the person, if you've driven drunk and killed someone, the person doesn't get resurrected because you're truly repentant. You might be truly repentant and they're still dead. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I actually, I'm, um, I think you were alluding to this, but um, when it comes to the divorce question itself, you know, I take just for the record, I take a fairly conservative stance on 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 divorce. I, I, you know, I believe everything the Bible teaches about it, but I also recognize that how do I say this? There are clearer um, things in the Bible than exactly what and how to apply the divorce thing, because you've certainly got the adultery exception. And do I know marriages where there's been adultery and they've forgiven and reconciled? Certainly, I do. So it's possible to have a, you know, to have that sin and and reconcile. And I certainly would, man, I'd, I'd be all for it and want to champion it. But but Jesus, my interpretation of this is Jesus seems to recognize that for some people, the nature of it is such that they wouldn't be able to get over it. And in that sense, a divorce is is not a sin because, you know, Jesus has said, if for some people, this is um, not able. I, I think you see the same thing with Paul and, uh, you know, I guess you just put it under the loose category of abandonment where an unbeliever walks away from a believer and leaves them or somebody who says they're a believer that then lives like they're an unbeliever and, and leaves. Well, there comes a point where Paul says you're not bound. Um, when does that happen? What, what does that look like? I mean, it doesn't tell us in great detail. There's a little bit of some, some judgment here as to when the unbeliever has departed. And so I, I recognize like, yeah, there's some there's some complexity in that I've got to be sensitive to. I think abuse certainly fits into that uh, abandonment type of language, because I don't think the New Testament, at no point does it ever try to give us the exhaustive, like, you know, only these two situations, exactly the way I'm describing them. What it's giving us is a principle of, of when this relationship is no longer salvageable for, for whatever reason. Um, you know, and again, I'm not trying to open up the floodgates there, but, you know, um, adultery, abuse, there's certain kinds of abandonment. When those things are there, then we recognize that that the New Testament actually makes an allowance for, hey, it's not a perfect situation, but this is the situation there is. Um, and there are some very committed Bible scholars, some great ones um, who are inerrantist and they take the Bible very seriously, who have written a lot on that. And so other pastors, if you're listening make yourself aware of those and preach with the nuance that's required in a delicate situation like that. I so love that you're emphasizing that. And I really love, J.D., that you are inviting women to critique your sermons ahead of time, because 
I've tried to do that with some of the pastors that I've listened to at times. And it's like, they know that they're saying things that may hurt women who have been abused. But what they're saying is, I have to preach to the majority, not to the minority. And I totally understand that you can't, you have 30 minutes to say your stuff and you don't, can't put every little caveat into every little thing that you say. And so you have to be careful there. But there are some times when just a small word, this doesn't apply to everybody can be really helpful without having to explain the whole reason why. And I right. think that's so important. The posture of, of prophet and pastor are, are different postures. They don't contradict, but I, I am a pastor. And there are times I sound prophetic, but I know when it comes to these situations, uh, this is not an exact scientific measurement, um, but I know that 85% of the time, that I'm talking about situations like this, the people need to hear from a pastor, not a prophet. And I, I'm going to make the truth clear, but I'm going to do so recognizing some of the unanswered questions, some of the brokenness. Most people that end up in divorce, it's not because they just don't know what the Bible teaches on it. I'm, I'm not saying they're all justified. I mean, we have a lot of situations at our church that are just sinful. Um, we have to deal with those. But I know for a lot of them, it's, it's a very difficult, tender thing that they need somebody, a godly counselor, walking with them, challenging them in the right ways, but walking with them through through this. What do you think men could do in the church? I remember working with a man who was abusive in my counseling practice, and I was so impressed with the pastoral staff. The eldership came with him to his counseling sessions and attended every single session with him so that if he lied about what happened or he spun it a different way or um, told his wife I'd said something that I hadn't said, um, he was held accountable for that. He was discipled, he was nurtured, he was nourished by this church. And I think the godly men in his life really did far more than I did. I mean, I was exposing some of the narcissism in his life, but they really shepherded him. And I wonder how the men of the church could be a part of this movement to help marriages succeed in, in helping men teach men how to treat women. Yeah. And one of the, the big sins downfall of our entire culture and this doesn't just apply to men, it applies to, I think, every quarter, is we tend to be very active and aware of the things that are injustices against us and not as aware and as vocal on things that don't affect us. And I think the mark of a truly godly Christian man is that he's caring as much about your pain as he is his own. I've sometimes wondered if this is the, the best way to have people think about it, but I don't know, but I know that this is how I grew a lot in this is I just started to think, particularly with these situations is how would I want to handle this if this were one of my daughters? And, you know, I mean, like to take the abuse question, I know we're talking about marriage, but just take the abuse question. If one of my daughters had been abused, I would go to her and it had been by somebody in the church. And I would say to her, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. Even if I didn't do anything wrong, even if it wasn't, even there was no human way that I could have known it was happening, I would be brokenhearted and just sorry. I, I'm sorry this happened on my watch. I wish I could, I wish I could have, I wish I somehow could have anticipated this. I'll sometimes talk to pastors and they're like, well, I'm not apologizing. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm like, I, I know, I know, you, but it happened on your watch. And what that victim needs to hear is they need to hear brokenness and sorrow that you're feeling with them. You're not you're not being forced to acknowledge that you're guilty of something you're not guilty of, but you should just have the same tenderness that I would have toward my daughter saying, sweetheart, I'm sorry. I couldn't have been there to make this not happen. 
And that's helped me have a grid for how I think about church members and how I talk about to other men of saying, let's own this. Let's take responsibility, whether it's our fault. And I put that in air quotes. Let's take responsibility, whether it's our fault or not, that we're going to make our church safe places for the most vulnerable. And when we do that, then we will have done our duty as being Christ-like leaders that put others' interests before our own. I so agree with that. And I think that men have such a powerful role in shepherding other men to be good men. Um, we just like we're trying to help women be better women in terms of not just being willing to be abused or the heroic sacrifice or just growing bitter and hard and angry that the church wasn't there for them. But how do you trust that Jesus cares about you? And how can we as a community of men and women shepherd and encourage and support the people under our care to be the best version of themselves, the person that God called them to be? And I think there's such a powerful role for the church to play in all of this. So I so appreciate your openness to that. Tell us a bit about your new book, Essential Christianity. Yeah. I, I looked at it, I thought, well, I'm going to have to read this. So tell us a little bit about why you wrote it and the heart of the gospel in 10 words. Tell us those 10 words. Well, just to clear up the obvious, it's more than 10 words long. <laughs> um, the 10 words are, are basically what, what it does is it tries to use Paul's, the Apostle Paul's logic line that goes through Romans, which is the obviously the classic explanation of Christianity. And it just says, what if what if Paul put that in 21st century terms? Now, the actual book of Romans is inspired by the Holy Spirit. My book is not. But I've, I've tried to say, let me rewrite the logic line of Romans for 21st century Americans. I read um, Mere Christianity and Basic Christianity, uh, Basic Christianity by John John R.W. Stott when I was in, in college. I probably read that book 10 times. I've probably given it to 20 or 30 people. And I, you know, it's 50 years old now. And I thought, you know, I'd really like to be able to have something that I can give our church members to read with somebody who is at least asking certain, you know, gospel-related questions. And um, all the books that I've ever written have been first and foremost for the Summit Church. And then a publisher comes along and says, hey, I actually think there's a bigger need for that. So that's what essential Christianity is, is a, is a tool for our church to be able to understand the basics of salvation better themselves and be able to explain it and even give it to somebody to to read along with them. So of all the books that I've written, I'm probably, I'm probably more excited about this one than I am any of the others, to be totally honest. Cool. How does the heart of the gospel speak into the problem of destructive and abusive relationships? Well, I mean, the gospel teaches us first that there is healing, that there's a God who understands brokenness. There's a God who, let's just say it, was abused. You know, was abused not by, you know, another gender per se, but he was abused by people that were in power. And so God understands that moment, that brokenness. We go to a high priest who um, feels um, even this kind of pain. Um, it shows us that there's healing for it. It shows us that through the power of the resurrection, there is that is that is an underestimated power to be able to put broken pieces back together. And you may never be able to go back into that same marriage, and you may not have, you know, the the life that you thought you were going to have when you were, you know, a young, a teenager looking forward. But but what you can have is um, something that is woven together with the cords of redemption that is like the Bible says, more beautiful than it was before it was broken. Um, you know, it's God can restore the the years the locusts have eaten. And whether those are self-inflicted locusts or whether they're something that was somebody else did to you unjustly, God can do it. Um, the gospel shows us the responsibility of those of us who are in, you know, positions of power. 
Um, and whatever we all, at some point in our life, find ourselves in a position of power. It shows you that you leverage that not for domination, but you leverage that to, to serve. I, I love how C.S. Lewis used to talk about complementarianism. He used to say, look, you know, it's true that in some ways the man is given a crown to wear in the relationship, but the first crown is a crown of thorns. And that's where he's going to lay down his interest and in his life for um, that wife that he's been put with. And so it shows us how we are to leverage and steward any kind of power we have, um, including uh, the power in both power, the powers we have in marriage. I love that. I love that. I'm excited to read it. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thanks for letting me join the conversation. Thank you for joining us for Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Leslie would like to invite you to a live free webinar on February 16th, where she will teach what is the difference between my problem, your problem, and our problem. Go to leslievernick.com forward slash join webinar to sign up. A daytime and evening option is available. Until next time, may God bless your relationships with him, with yourself, and with others.